0: let's get started let's uh let's get into the content and the reason that we are here today so if everybody here is online and people will still kind of trickle in I'd like to continue to point people to the uh, the Facebook evidence management community forum that's just a great resource uh, for evidence managers The goal is to build some community there and, and give people a place just to chat back and forth on an open open platform uh, it is a private forum so that uh, it's not public facing to where anybody can just look and read. Uh, It is constricted or restricted to members of that forum. So please consider jumping on. Uh, People have questions and you might have answers or you might have questions. People have answers. So that's, that's really the point of that whole thing is just to connect people and get people, uh, on the same page, or at least, li- yeah, literally on the same page, on the same Facebook page. Uh, if you've got questions for us or about us, we can be found on evidencemanagement.com. That's our website. On our website, we try to we try to pack that with some resources and things that you can use. Uh, today, specifically, I'd like to like to encourage you to go to our website, look on our resources pages at our standards and best practices. Uh, hopefully those documents can point you in the right direction in a number for a number of different issues and reasons. If you have questions, uh, we've made those available, you know, they're free, open, online, open source documents, uh, that you can access at any time to help kind of guide you through questions that you might have. And again, just like our evidence training, I mean, this free online training is not free. It costs somebody something. Uh, we partnered with Tracker Products. They are an evidence management software provider, and they help us keep the lights on and, well, literally keep the uh, keep the website up. Uh, you can find out more about them at trackerproducts.com. So today is episode one, season one, the fall season. Uh, the plot line is not going to be uh, necessarily very adventuresome but I think you'll find and hope I I hope you'll find the content and the, the topics that we're discussing relevant to you. And I hope that it makes a difference. I hope that you can walk away from each session with something that you can apply, uh, to your operations back at your agency. Today we're going to be talking about between now and normal and normal might've already arrived for your agency. You might already be back up and running at full strength, uh, So if you are, this might be a little late, but for those of you who are still trying to reopening and trying to figure out how to navigate opening, or even if you've opened up, but you still don't feel completely comfortable about the way you're set up to operate, uh, I'd like to give you some things to think about today. So the goal is to really talk about safely reopening at the end of what we hope is the end of a pandemic. Just some guidelines and some things to think about But more than anything, I'd like you to think about how we can approach different problems. I mean, the coronavirus, COVID-19 is something new. It is novel. I mean, it's literally a new thing that we haven't had to deal with before. But we experience problems in the evidence room. We deal with issues that are new all the time. So more than just talking about just how do we respond to COVID specifically, I'd like for us to start Thinking and talking about how do we respond to new issues, new threats, new problems? Uh, what resources are available to help us deal with new things that uh, that pop up that are outside of the normal scope of our operations? Six months ago, nobody anticipated that the world would be shut down due to a a, a virus. Um, you know that just wasn't on anybody's radar. It certainly wasn't on mine. But that happened. And we've got to respond to it as a as an industry, and there are some there are some common things that we can do in a response to new things, novel things like the coronavirus that will help us become more sustainable, more effective, and more efficient at dealing with these issues when they come up. So what are we talking about today? Uh, we're going to talk about developing some of those ill structured problem solving skills. Uh, we're going to talk about applying best standard or standards and best practices to new problems and to our problem-solving model. We'll discuss a couple of the relevant issues that are facing evidence managers today with respect to COVID-19 or coronavirus, and then we're going to try to start wrapping our brains on some around some topics or or some issues that they're they're ill structured how do we fill the void of the unknown when a new question comes up what do i do about this how are, what are some things that we can do as evidence custodians to make to create good responses quality responses based on solid information and and solid practices and principles to answer those questions and figure those problems out i've got a perspective on that that i hope will make some sense I also would like to spend some time at the end talking about true personal protective gear. Um, We'll cover that. We'll talk about establishing a model protocol for COVID response or to uh, any kind of viral response or uh, contagion response that might come up in the future. And at the end, we'll answer your questions uh, or we will take your questions. And if we have answers, we'll provide them. If not, I'll find them and I will share them with you directly. So that's a lot to cover. I don't know. Uh, we don't really have a timetable on this. I certainly want to be respectful of your time and, and complete the discussion within an hour. But I'm more than happy to stay on and answer questions uh, very similar to the way we did in the training class. Uh, I'll, I'll answer your questions until everybody drops off and, and stops asking questions. So let's talk about ill-structured problems. I mean, one of the things that struck me about coronavirus that was different but also very similar to other things that show that 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 show up in an evidence room. And no matter where I teach or when I teach or what conditions we're teaching under, I can almost guarantee that someone is going to ask me a question that I've never been asked before. Uh, it happens over and over and over again. And I would have thought after doing this for a number of years and doing this in a lot of different locations and regions that the questions would start all kind of sounding the same. Uh, but new events happen, new new things happen, new technologies emerge, new threats emerge. Uh, so the questions they do change, our issues change. And it's really difficult to have one pat answer for problems that we really can't control. So I'd like to just for a minute, just talk about ill-structured problems. The COVID virus has been an ill-structured problem, uh, an ill-structured problem as as it would be defined in, in problem-solving theory, is any problem where the starting position and all the allowable operations or factors or the end state can't be specified clearly, or we just don't know what the solution is. The COVID virus was the absolute perfect example of an ill-structured problem. We don't know much about it. We don't know what to do, we don't know about the lifespan, we don't know about transmission, we don't know what to do. So it is the very definition of an ill-structured problem. I can't imagine what it's been like for CDC and for medical professionals to deal with, with this virus knowing so little. Uh, law enforcement was kind of the same way. We're on the back end of the curve. So it's it's a classic ill-defined problem. But we in law enforcement are in the business of providing solutions. And we have to generate solutions that make sense, that are safe, that are effective, that work for everyone. Uh, So that's why we study ill-structured problems. We've all got to be able to navigate through these kinds of problems uh, because we're going to encounter them over and over and over again. The nice thing about ill-structured problems is solve – or the fun thing about them is trying to solve them. Uh, and I believe that we can solve most of these ill-structured problems by applying knowledge and principles that we've already got to uh, to the problem using kind of creative out-of-the-box thinking and trying to figure out how to break this problem down into manageable pieces so that we can create a solution. And I think that there are a few things that we can do to set ourselves up for success when we're faced with an ill-structured problem. One of the best things to do is to go to a resource that gives you information that is applicable to the problem. Um, I'm going to point out two different standards and best practice resources to you, and I'm going to make the case that if you study standards and best practices related to evidence management, that you will find solutions to most of the problems already in existence for that problem. Like the COVID issue, what do I do about COVID with respect to evidence? If you follow best practices and standards of evidence management, I think you will find that a lot of those issues, a lot of those questions can be solved just by applying best practices and standards to the problem-solving equation. Standards and best practices, the ones that are well-written, the ones that are are robust and contain enough information to be helpful they they're they're going to address critical issues my standards the ones that we've written for the evidence management institute we don't talk about covid-19 specifically in our standards but having said that our standards and best practices are directly applicable and can be used and and applied to COVID-19 because they protect against all sorts of threats. And using these standards, incorporating these standards into your operations can, can help protect you against a broad spectrum of problems. Standards and best practices, they provide a reference point. They they provide an anchor in the sand. Some place that you can go to find answers to your questions. That might not be the direct answer to your question, but I can apply this piece of learning here to this problem over here in a way that makes sense they are adaptable. And if they're not adaptable, they're probably not standards and they're probably not best practices because these things have to be fluid enough to cover a wide variety of of outcomes and a wide variety of, of just baseline issues. Um, I don't even know what I was talking about when I wrote evaluate. Okay. Now I do. When you're looking at standards and best practices, one way to evaluate their quality and, and, Who knows if this is gonna be an issue to anyone, but if you're reading through the standards that we've published at the Evidence Management Institute, I find that they're a fairly good body of work. They're always being tweaked, they're always being added to. Uh, It is a a continuing body of work. I hope never to be finished with them because we're gonna keep answering new questions and finding new questions and applying those. But you can evaluate a good set of standards and best practices if they help you navigate through a problem that's not even defined in the standard, kind of like the COVID issue today. If you can read our standards and best practices from the Evidence Management Institute and apply that to the COVID problem, probably pretty good, probably pretty useful. Um, Excuse me. And very similarly, my second favorite body of standards and best practices from NIST, you'll find that if you read that guide, the Biological Evidence Handbook, after all, COVID is is a biological agent. If you apply the knowledge that you can find in that body of work to the problem, in addition to other standards and best practices, it's going to give you answers to your questions. It just doesn't say COVID in the title. So we'll talk more about that in just a second, but I really believe it's important to study those standards and best practices, because when you're faced with a problem, you can apply that knowledge directly, and if you don't if you don't have that knowledge base already, uh, they're certainly available to you to read at any time. But but that's just good information to store away in your head for a rainy day. Now we've got three different issues facing evidence custodians with respect to with respect to the COVID virus and and things that we're dealing with today, and they're all pretty closely related, but they're all slightly different. I mean, you've got the COVID pandemic itself. You've got a virus that is highly contagious that can be spread from, uh, we don't know technically if it's person to person, but we know that it's airborne. We know that it can be diffused through the air and we know that when two humanoids are in close proximity to one another and they're talking or coughing uh, that the virus is expelled from one caught by the other and That's how COVID starts. Uh, My sister uh, just got out of the hospital in South Bend, Indiana. She went to the hospital for something else, found out that she had COVID-19. She was fairly asymptomatic, but uh, she had so many other issues. I don't think it it bothered her at all, but that's not what we're talking about. That was a sidebar. Uh, So it exists. It's real. And it is something that we have to deal with and we have to take seriously to protect ourselves, to protect our citizens, to protect our uh, loved ones from being infected. It's something we have to deal with. And for a while, many government facilities had just closed up shop, but we're each finding that as governments reopen and as facilities reopen, that we've got to kind of navigate this, uh, a response, whereas I mean, we will soon all be back at work full time in our jobs. So we're all coming back to an evidence room or a, an evidence vault or, or a police department, or if you work in e-discovery and that, you're coming back somewhere. Everybody's coming back, things are reopening. How do we do that safely? How do we do that without either contracting a virus or passing a virus? Those are two important questions. Um, There are a lot of fears and concerns over exposure. I've gotten several emails to me and just from my inbox, people that have either taken the class or have listened to another webinar, asking questions specifically about preventing COVID exposure or potential exposure to a virus or, or another type of contagion. And that's why I really thought this might be a good way to kick things off because it's a timely issue. It's one that we should probably deal with and discuss and then move on to to other issues that that affect evidence managers. So one of the things about the issues that face us is every creature under the sun, um, it's important that we respond to these issues rather than react to these issues. There's a difference between reaction and a response. Everything reacts. Uh, plants, protozoans, single-celled animals—all organisms react, and those reactions come in many different forms. Three common ones are fight, flight, or freeze. None of those three—fight, flight, or freeze—none of those are particularly helpful in dealing with a a virus, or how do we re- interact, or how do we interact, or, or protect ourselves from a virus. So we've got to slow it down a little bit. Reactions are usually devoid of thought they're devoid of logic and they're devoid of order, Uh, reactions are typically chaotic and ill structured and don't lead to good solutions. So it's important that as we face these issues, as evidence custodians, that we respond to the pandemic. We respond to these issues rather than react to them. We take intentional action based on conscious thought, it's a reason, reasoned and measured approach. That's the type of approach that I would like to see agencies take with respect to this virus or any other problem that pops up down the road, and there will be many. So I had a great question uh, from a person that participated in our Basic Elements class, and I'd like to use this question to help us kind of Draw some distinctions and 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 show how we can apply uh, the standards and best practices that already exist to the COVID response or to COVID questions. And her email uh, basically went: My soapbox at the moment is found property or safekeeping property. How do we receive it without the worry of being contaminated by the virus? Our solution at the moment is that they're just being submitted in trash bags instead of a purse or a backpack. Any thoughts? and i have a lot of thoughts on everything i think this is a great question and i think that there are several things in this question that that we can highlight as a response to the virus but also be broadly applicable and broadly useful to us as evidence managers so the main question that i had in response to her question is you know so let's let's break this down you know We've got found property, safekeeping property, and from the question, my inference was that officers at that agency were just submitting purses and backpacks unpackaged. They were submitting these packages, these purses and backpacks, especially found property or safekeeping property. Uh, They were just submitting the backpack itself or the purse itself. And the first, my first thought or my first response is, what do, we, what do we know, or what have we learned, or what, what can we apply from our standards and best practices that's directly applicable to this uh, this procedure? And then what do we know about this virus that we can apply to this question as well? Their solution was to pack everything in trash bags uh, instead of just submitting the purse or the backpack. And I think that's, to, to package it is a great response. But when we think about COVID and what we know or what we don't know, we don't know a lot. We don't know how long the virus lives on a particular surface. There haven't been any studies or any literature that let us know how long the virus is going to live on any particular structure or substrate. There have been some studies about it living longer on metal than, I mean, there are studies, but there's no conclusive data. But one thing we do know about evidence in general and biological evidence that we can apply from the training that we've already kind of received, the information that's already out there, is that when we package things in plastic, uh, that creates an environment that things grow in. So if we're putting our backpacks and our purses inside of a plastic bag or a trash bag and wrapping it up, One of the possible outcomes or one of the likely outcomes is that we've created an environment that traps all that moisture inside the bag and it actually gives that virus conditions where it might actually grow better than it would if it were unpackaged. So we don't know necessarily the answer to that, but I certainly know that that's a possibility. That's why we don't package things in plastic uh, if we're dealing with biological evidence or contagions but I do think that there is value in taking those principles and packaging them in something. Uh, we teach in our training class that that found property and safekeeping property should be handled and packaged similarly to the way evidence is packaged. Uh, so my first recommendation to her was that you know, any evidence that comes in, found keeping found safekeeping evidence or regardless of what it is, should be packaged. You know, we package things to prevent cross-contamination. Uh, we package things to protect us not from the item itself or, you know, sometimes, well, yeah, sometimes we package things to protect us from the item itself. Uh, this would be one of those cases. So the recommendation was package the stuff require them to package the items inside of a craft bag that they seal up that you never touch i mean we don't i don't think it's a good idea to submit purses and backpacks just without packaging because of that cross contamination issue not just for you as the evidence custodian but for every other thing on that shelf that is adjacent to those backpacks um it's just a good basic principle of evidence management that that makes sense to follow And so that was kind of the, the response. I mean, we wanna replace and we wanna we want to respond to these unknowns with reason and with knowledge that we can apply that we've had before. I hope that makes sense. It made a lot of sense to me uh, when I was writing it, but uh, that's really gonna be more up to you to judge. I like to see us break down uh, problems into root issues. Um, we know that there are certain root issues that we're dealing with when we're dealing with COVID in particular. It is a biological contagion. So we can look to biological evidence standards, guidelines, best practices to help give us guidance on what to do with COVID uh, materials or COVID maybe uh not necessarily tainted, but potential exposure to COVID through those. We've got established evidence procedures or evidence handling procedures that are already kind of written down that can be followed that can also be broadly applied and applicable to COVID. Same with packaging. We have packaging standards, best practices, and procedures that if we follow the ones that are already established, if we follow those standards and best practices, that's going to help us a lot and protect us from those things Uh, it it protects you from a broad spectrum of issues, COVID would be one. But we also need to look at how are we going to be exposed? If if there is an exposure potential to any pathogen, um, where are the two most likely sources that we're going to be exposed? And one of them is at intake, when we're pulling stuff out of the lockers and the other is when we're returning evidence to an owner or property back to an owner or transferring uh, evidence to another location. So those are our, our two exposure possibilities with respect to evidence management or the two most common ones at evidence intake and when we're moving evidence or returning evidence or property back to an unknown own, owner. So if we base our response on established practices that already exist and procedures that already make sense, if you've already got those as an agency, the procedures that you write for general evidence packaging and biological evidence and evidence handling are more than likely, if they're written correctly, are going to apply to other things like COVID-19. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We just have to have a good wheel to start with. I recommend... If you do nothing else uh, today, I would read, take a deep dive and read that Biological Evidence Preservation Handbook. It is a great document. You can get a copy on our website. You can get it from the NIST website. But also, spend some time looking at the standards and best practices in our best practice guide that is also available on our website and online at the resort under the resource page. I think there are ten different chapters that cover ten different areas of evidence management, and what you will find in those pages are principles and practices that you can apply to all types of evidence that will also be broadly applicable and protect you from things like covid nineteen so and I'll give you some examples. One of the principles that we teach in our class one of the principles that we that we have established in our standards is whoops is package are just packaging principles all items should be packaged labeled and sealed i mean that is a standard that we've established and that if we follow that principle that all items should be packaged labeled and sealed that is going to help protect us from viral transmission or pathogen transmission if all items are packaged, labeled, and sealed. I mean, by following that logic alone uh, helps us. Same with the packaging manual. So you can take these two existing standards and existing practices, and if those are applied at your agency, then they're they're already going to provide protection against COVID-19 or COVID-20 or COVID-25, whatever the, the sequel is, Uh, these things will be broadly applicable to not only this issue, but future issues as well. I mean, I remember there are usually some cycles that law enforcement goes through. Something will happen in the news and it'll be an exposure to a certain thing. I mean, for a few years, it's been fentanyl. Fentanyl is a very real problem that needs to be addressed uh, because it is a different animal than, than other types of narcotics that we deal with. But Hep C or hepatitis exposure or HIV, you know, Ebola. We go through all these exposure risks, but if we take the same basic safety principles and apply them to our operations, it protects us against each of those things. You know, you look 25 years ago, 10 years ago, there were still law enforcement and firefighters, uh, EMTs that would respond and and check on patients without wearing any type of gloves whatsoever. You don't see that so much anymore because we understand what that protects you against. And it doesn't take very many seconds to don a pair of nitrile gloves. So the culture is changing, but we need to make sure that we continue to apply those principles uh, because they do protect us from a wide variety of things. We recommend evidence packaging in our standards and best practices like craft envelopes and paper bags. Craft envelopes and paper bags are breathable. They're appropriate for biological evidence. They also protect against those unintentional or accidental exposures uh, if we'll package the items to begin with. Now, one thing I do wanna harp on that is another standard that is very critical with respect to COVID-19 or any type of pathogen is labeling your officers have to be, and we have to hold them accountable to make sure if we believe something might be or might contain uh, a virus like COVID-19, that needs to be labeled as a biohazard. Uh, it needs to have a package, uh, a biohazard label on the package. It needs to be clear to you as the evidence custodian that this thing might contain something that is not good for you. Uh, so that's something that if it's not written into your procedures already or into your practices already, that's something that you should definitely communicate to your officers and make sure that you establish immediately as a as a safeguard. If they have received this property from someone that is coughing or seems to have COVID-like symptoms or, uh, you know, go ahead and label the item as biological evidence, uh, even if it's property, biological property, uh, it needs to have a warning label, regardless of how it comes in. If we believe that it's capable of of transmitting something, uh, then it needs to have a biohazard label. I want to talk real quick about true personal protective gear. Um, This is a bit of a soapbox issue for me, because I believe in the value of personal protective gear. Um, And another source, while I'm thinking about it, I just thought about it, The June issue of Evidence Technology Magazine, uh, I've written an article on this topic for Evidence Technology Magazine. It's not out yet, but when it does, uh, you might check that out because we restate some things in there. We've got some other information in there that might be helpful to you as well. But when we look at true personal protective gear, we recommend three things. I am not convinced, uh, nor is there any scientific study or inquiry of note, that 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 demonstrates protection for against viral transmission or pathogen transmission using the little masks that we've sewn. Uh, I have one of those masks because in our county, if you don't wear one of those masks or a, an N95 mask, then you can't go some places. And I like to go to some places, so I wear a mask when I have to go to those places. Um, But for evidence managers, these are things that you need to make sure are a part of your operations because you want to be truly protected uh, and protected to a standard that someone has studied before. Um, If your agency is not using for first responders and evidence personnel N95 masks, N95 masks are tested uh, to prevent transmissions of particles down to 0.3 microns. And at that level, that's what the masks are designed for. OSHA has already established the standard for N95 masks at 0.3 microns. We can rely on those N95 masks worn properly according to the directions to protect us against being exposed to the virus or taking in virus particles from the air. It will also prevent, unless you've got the, the little valve mask, expelling those particles back out into the air. So if your agency is using paper or masks or non-N95 masks, you know, homemade cloth masks, uh, those are usually prettier, but I don't know and I don't think that anyone can say that they are more effective. We're in the business of actually protecting people with things that have been tested and proven. So our recommendation is N95 masks for evidence personnel handling evidence or dealing with the public during this stage and this phase of the pandemic. Um, it, it, it's the only kind of standardized personal protective gear that we have any documentation on. And until there is documentation on other types of cloth masks, I just, I wouldn't trust my health to those if I were concerned about it. And if I were working in an environment where exposure is a real risk, um, don't take those risks, so if equip your evidence personnel, equip your first responders with N95 masks as a baseline of true personal protective gear. Uh, the other issue and the other element of true personal protective gear are nitrile gloves. Now, some agencies still use latex gloves. Most are phasing out of latex just because of the allergies uh, that can be associated with latex gloves, but nitrile gloves are a critical part of any personal protective gear package or or setup. It is really important that you equip your personnel, or if you're an evidence custodian, that you utilize nitrile gloves that are designed to a specification. I recommend using the National Fire Protection Association's approved standards for nitrile gloves. Now, I don't admit very often, that the fire guys uh, have a lot to offer to me as an individual, but I do have to admit, the things that they do, they do extremely well, and they have a lot of knowledge and they have a lot of research behind them. Nitrile gloves are one of those uh, one of those issues. I remember as a patrol officer, we had crappy gloves that were like paper thin that would rip. If we really wanted to be protected, and this is we relied on the firefighters to let to let us borrow their stuff because they had nitrile gloves that were thick, uh, they didn't rip, they didn't tear, and that's because they did the hard work of, of having a group and having people actually study nitrile gloves as an issue. Nitrile gloves need to protect you up, you know, past the fold of your wrist. They need to be thick enough to use out in the field uh, to where they prevent you being, you know, having pathogens transmitted through your gloves. Uh, That NFPA standard is used um, across the board in emergency medical services and fire service uh, to protect them against pathogens. So we recommend using that same standard, nitrile gloves that are designed to that same standard. Now, interesting thing, I don't sell gloves, but, uh, but these Microflex gloves, Microflex is a manufacturer of nitrile gloves. They've actually designed gloves that are not only pathogen tested and meet that NFPA uh, specification, but they're, they've also been designed and tested against fentanyl exposure. And that's, they get really down to the microscopic levels of, of micron uh, barriers that will prevent fentanyl from coming across that barrier as well. So check that out. Uh, the last thing to think about is eye protection if you work in an environment there are a couple of ways you can achieve eye protection you can have one of those barriers across uh you know across the counter but if you're potentially being exposed to people it's also probably a good idea to wear eye protection to protect you from uh the same type of particles and exposures that can get into your eyes as well as your nose and your mouth so true personal protective gear i can't state that strongly enough. If we're using makeshift personal protective gear, it may provide some measure of protection, but it's not been studied, it's not been tested. Uh, So there is a a huge element of doubt that I would associate with using materials that have been tested or designed to prevent pathogen contamination or exposure risks. So uh, as far as a model COVID-19 exposure response, these are the things that, that we recommend as the evidence management institute. One, require required evidence packaging. If we do not permit evidence coming into our lockers and coming into our facilities and being stored, if we do not permit unpackaged, or if we if we if we don't boy, I really mixed up my double negatives here, package everything. Okay. If everything comes in a package then it's going. you're gonna have a, a new layer, a, an increased layer of protection against COVID contamination or any pathogen exposure if it is inside a sealed package. Um, I can't understate or underscore that enough. If we require things to come in package, if we don't allow things to come in bare, uh, unless we just absolutely have to, that creates a, a barrier against that uh, contamination source already. So required evidence packaging is is part one of a model COVID-19 exposure response. If you've allowed people to submit purses and backpacks and things like that unpackaged in the past, change that and require them to package it. Uh, It is a best practice anyways, but if you you make that change now and just never go back, uh, this is a great time to make some of those changes uh, because we've got we've got compelling issues at hand that that might help us make those changes. Part two of a model COVID-19 exposure response would be requiring the appropriate use of approved personal protective gear. Require evidence custodians, require officers when they're packaging evidence to wear personal protective gear, to require evidence custodians when they're completing the intake process to wear appropriate personal protective gear. Uh, if we require the appropriate use of approved personal protective gear, that's going to add another layer of security to our operations. Now, the third and final kind of piece of the puzzle for a COVID response, uh, COVID exposure response, for a model COVID o- exposure response, are evidence return procedures. Now, if you're an agency where you've got a barrier and a slide-through, a pass-through, a uh, customer service window, you've already achieve this. So there's not a lot that you need to do other than making sure that that, that zone is clean and re-clean and decontaminated. So whatever kind of safe zone that you have, or however you return evidence, if you have to go and face to face with somebody to return evidence, there are a couple of things that are critically important. One is a clean neutral zone, a place where we can return and exchange not only property, but, Chain of custody documentation and identification uh, it is absolutely essential that we maintain a strong, secure stable three hundred and sixty degree chain of custody with our evidence transactions, regardless of the conditions that we're exchanging evidence in so step one is to establish a clean neutral zone, a place where you can uh that can be decontaminated and that you can exchange personal identifying information and documentation as well as the evidence and then establish procedures for positively identifying and documenting the exchange or the return of evidence that allow that transaction to happen remotely. Um, That's why I love the use of evidence management software because a signature capture pad can be recleaned. It is an easy thing to do remotely. but not all of us have those. There are other mechanisms, but it needs to be some way of positively identifying that person and and obtaining the documentation that you need um, before that exchange is made. Then you would facilitate the exchange of that item in the neutral zone, in the clean neutral zone. So step three is facilitate the change. The last step is decontaminate and reset that clean neutral zone. If we follow these four steps in establishing a a safe zone for evidence return, we protect ourselves, we protect our citizens from a potential COVID-19 exposure that keeps us safe. It keeps the citizens safe, and it also preserves the chain of custody for our evidence. So I hope those things made sense. I hope... uh, I hope you learned something uh, new, or at least had something else to think about. If you didn't learn anything new, we will continue doing these. Uh, we're going to start spreading them out. We'll broadcast them live at 2 p.m. on each day that we're broadcasting. It's it's always going to be a Thursday at two. Uh, the next one will be June 25th. We'll have another one on July the 9th, um, July 23rd, August 6th, August 20th, and September 3rd. That's the schedule for the broadcast, and they will be available later on evidencemanagement.com. Now, later usually means the next day. Sometimes it means Monday, but we want to have these available to you. We have a special page on our website uh, for this specific uh, content under a resources page. Um, I'll try to add that URL to the to the screen next time uh, to where you can find that stuff. But again, 2 o'clock, 2 p.m., not next Thursday, but two Thursdays from around June 25th. And we'll continue these types of discussions. As long as we have people showing up, we will continue to talk. So uh, some of the topics that we've got in production, I would have loved to have been able to put a date with a topic, but we're just not there yet. Uh, We want to talk about a model fentanyl protocol soon. And we want to basically find a time when James is available to discuss that because he's more of a a subject matter expert than I am. And we would like to have his input instead of mine. That just makes sense to me, but we want to do a couple of episodes on success stories, uh, with justice, social justice, kind of a social justice perspective. We're, we're working with a couple of, uh, entities out there that, that do work in the field of equitable justice. I want to kind of show you how the work that you do translates into changing people's lives and making people's lives better. Uh, I do a lot of soapbox uh, presentations about the importance of what we do as evidence managers, and I believe it wholeheartedly. Uh, But it is nice sometimes to see the results of our efforts and to see the rewards and the importance of what we do played out in someone's life. And we want to do a couple of those. Uh, I think we might have some really cool stories coming up that would be of interest to you and will resonate with you also am working on what I think is the coolest evidence storage system ever. Uh, I'm actually going to travel to uh, Ohio in a couple of weeks to get to see this in person, but I've, I mean, it's cool, and I don't know if it'll work for everybody, but the principles will work for everybody, and it's it's something that you'll want to see, and we're going to do an entire show on that. Uh, Again, we're not selling it, but it's something that I think you'll be impressed with just conceptually and and uh, I think it would be a game changer for many agencies. Also going to talk and do a couple of shows on emerging uh, technology with respect to evidence packaging. I've lined up some folks uh, in the industry that have new technology with respect to packaging that I think is going to be another kind of game changing thing. Uh, and we want to do a complete show on that and just show you some things that are available already. Uh, that I think you would enjoy and benefit from. So, if you have questions, because I'm an old man, I won't be able to just look directly at the camera. I'm gonna have to scrunch my eyes and look at them. So let's see if there are questions up there and we'll just answer the rest of them before we quit. I had one question, what about spraying the backpacker purse with the viricide? Well, there are a couple of reasons why we might not consider that. I mean, and again, it it might be, if it were jail property and you had a jail protocol uh, that required that, you know, based on health and safety code things, uh, I would just be reluctant to apply any chemical to someone's personal property because we wanna return that personal property in the same condition that it was received in. Uh Hosing it down with with the virus side may or may not affect the value of the items inside uh and even if it's not valuable to us, it's probably valuable to the owner, so I would be reluctant and I don't know enough about available virusides that could be broadly applied uh I think you're as equally protected receiving that thing inside of a package you know the the goal is if i'm if I'm handling this with. Nitrile gloves, and I'm handling a package of evidence, and I'm wearing nitrile gloves, and it's inside a package. That's two barriers that 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 pathogen would have to cross. Uh, you know, it's very possible that ex- there's a virus side that exists. I would probably need to do some more digging and talking to people that maybe work in corrections, but uh, that would be my reservation with the virus side. Uh, absolutely got uh, someone from an evidence technician with the fire marshal's office and all of those items it's part of the everyday uniform and for people in fire service this is not new to them uh, n95 mass nfpa approved nitrile gloves and eye protection i mean if really if you want to look at smart evidence or smart virus protection smart pathogen protection watch the fire guys because they are exposed more. They're exposed more frequently to pathogens than we are. I mean, when you think about an EMS or an EMT guy on a box, paramedic on a box going out. I mean, we think we deal with gross stuff. They deal with it all the time, and they're dealing with it up close and personal, uh, even more so than we are. So pay attention to the firefighters. Pay attention to EMTs and paramedics gear up the way they gear up and and have that very same standard for your for your law enforcement uh, personnel as well. And here's a question. If you're on the EMI website looking for the biological evidence preservation handbook, it's behind our client resources page. There is in the in the corner of the website, it says client login. You click in there, sign up for an account and all the resources that we've got from our questions and answers, uh, different forms. Uh, we've got sample audit forms, we've got sample policies, sample procedures, uh, sample disposition guides. All that is located behind that, that website and that's where the Biological Evidence Preservation Handbook is located. That is not something that we produced, we did not create that. Uh, that is also available on the NIST website, but you'd have to uh, You'd have to dig on this website to find it but it is there okay now we have do we have to wait before we can know what this super system is yes you do because we're not ready to talk about it yet i regret that but hopefully it will make you come back and it really is uh it's really cool i wish i could tell you more but i mean it's something i've not seen before i mean and I'm not ready to discuss it because I don't want to, not that I don't want to withhold information from you, but I'm not ready. I, I, I'm not ready to speak intelligently about it. I don't understand the technology enough. That's why I'm going to Ohio to, to study it because it's it's that freaking cool. Um, and you're absolutely welcome. Thank you. Thank you for your for comments. I'm going to go back and, and scrub and make sure I didn't miss any questions. And I think that's everything. So if you have further questions, if you have things that you think of related to COVID or a COVID response uh, and they come up offline after we're off the air, email me at Sean at evidence I'd be happy to reach out and answer those questions for you. And who knows, I mean, a lot of these questions that we get from email and on our website, Uh, you know, they, they make us think critically about our operations. Sometimes we add things to our standards and best practices because of the questions that we get. Uh, so they're definitely useful and we will definitely answer your questions, but it's probably also something that's helpful to somebody else out there. More than one person probably has the question that you have. They just haven't thought about, uh, asking it yet. So a couple more before we go. Yes, it is in Ohio. I can tell you that much. And you're very welcome. I'm glad these are helpful. Uh, I'm glad that hopefully there's some useful information here uh, that you can apply to your operations directly. We're going to start teaching classes again. So hopefully soon towards the end of the summer and fall, uh, we'll be coming to a location near you. I'd love to see you live and in person and and do some more training. With real humanoids and yeah Brian I can't uh, acknowledge or deny the answer to that question since most people don't have visibility on the questions uh, I'm not gonna lie to you I will say that much so thank you and good night I hope to see you back in two weeks june 25th for episode number two we'll be talking about one of these topics uh again thank you for your attention thank you for being here i'm going to push this little button and then my face is momentarily going to freeze and then we'll be done